Second Thessalonians chapter three, beginning in verse one, it says, finally, brethren, pray for us. That the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. And that we we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. As we continue our study in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, remember throughout the book, Paul has encouraged the believers in the last few sections in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, to believe the truth. In chapter 2, verse 15, to guard the truth. In chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, to practice the truth. And now in chapter three, verses one through five, Paul is exhorting the reader to share the truth. As a matter of fact, we're not simply to love it or to learn it, but we're to live it. We love and learn and live the truth. Alexander McLaren wrote, quote, the gospel is not speculation, but fact. It is truth. Because it's the record of a person who is truth, unquote. Paul is shifting gears and he's bringing the letter to a close. As a matter of fact, Paul has some closing words. Here there is a request for prayer and then a reminder that God is faithful and that God is love. And so again, we look in verse one, Paul's pray, his, his, it begins with a personal request. He says, I want you to pray for God's message. Look at verse one. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Paul knows that the believers in Thessaly are under intense persecution and experiencing trial and trouble. Remember the context in which Paul has written this book. They are in trouble. They are in pain. They are in sorrow. And in that trouble and in that pain and in that sorrow, Paul is writing in part to provide comfort and consolation, but also to correct a misunderstanding. And the misunderstanding, of course, concerns the coming of Christ. And so Paul wants them to continue to walk faithfully in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul and his companions, they have their hands full as well in Corinth. When Paul left Thessalonica and he made his way to Athens and he preached the gospel and then he leaves Athens and he goes to Corinth and he preaches the good news about Jesus, the story of Jesus, the life of Jesus the death of Jesus on a cross for sin, the resurrection of Jesus, the reality that Jesus can change your life. And he receives he receives opposition and persecution. And guess from where in Corinth, from the religious leaders, from the Jewish congregation 
from the synagogue that is unwilling to abandon Judaism. Because Paul is preaching and what Paul is preaching is, guess what? The sum and the substances of both the prophecies and the promises have been fulfilled in Christ. And Jesus isn't just a Jewish Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah for everyone. This Jesus who was promised by God through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Judah, and then David has come and he is both king and Lord. He is God is satisfied with his sacrifice and is willing to forgive you and redeem you and reconcile you to himself. And the religious leaders don't believe it. And they oppose him. And they persecute him. And, and they resist him. And so when Paul writes, finally, in verse 3, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. He's making a transition. He's talked about doctrine and now he's going to talk about duty. He has reminded them of things to believe. And now he's going to talk about behavior. He is going to give a practical exhortation towards discipleship and personal sanctification. And it begins with prayer. He asks for prayer, but not just any kind of prayer. He doesn't just simply say, pray for me, and he leaves it at that. He says, pray for me and pray for God's message. We know that prayer is power. Remember what prayer is. It's an admission that you can't and God can the moment that you go to God in humility and dependence upon the Lord and you say, Lord, I need you. I need your help. I need your provision. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need for my husband, my wife, my brother, my sister, my family, my friends, my neighbor to hear the gospel and understand it and believe it. And so that's part of the point. We're left with the impression that in some sense, our dependence upon God and our dependence upon his power provides the fuel for the success of any given ministry. And so Paul doesn't just simply say, Paul, an apostle who has his act together and knows everything about everything, doesn't need some new believer to tell me what to do. But rather, he says, no. Even as a new believer, struggling with the pain and the persecution and the trial that you're experiencing, I'm asking you to pray. I'm asking you to pray for me and pray for Timothy. To pray for the gospel. That's the idea. He knows that hope lies in believing the words of Jesus. And Jesus has already made a promise in John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. Remember when he said, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the father may be glorified in the son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. And so Paul says, do it. Pray. Pray for me. Pray for the gospel. As a matter of fact, earlier in the first letter that he had written to the Thessalonians, remember in First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, he wrote, Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you. 
I've been praying for you. And now it's time for you to pray for me. That's what he's saying. And look what he says. That the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. When he says the word of the Lord, he's talking about the revelation of God in Christ. Remember in the opening chapter of John chapter 1 verse 1 where it says, In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It is Jesus who is the manifestation of God. People have cried out in every generation, Lord, we need to hear from you. God, if you're there, why don't you have something to say to us? And so in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews said, God in times past spoke through the prophets, but he has in these last days spoken to us by his own dear son. Would you like to know what God thinks about your circumstance? Would you like to know what God thinks about your sin and your hopeless and your helpless condition? Would you like to know what God thinks and how God wants to have friendship and fellowship with you? That's the The point that he's making, that the word of the Lord, it's the revelation of God. It's the message that Paul is preaching. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. There are two kinds of people who are listening to the gospel, those who are hearing it and believing it and those who are hearing it. And saying, I don't believe it. That's the idea. The gospel is the Christian message for those who have done their best and failed. It's where you come to grips and you go, hey, I have tried to do my best to be a good person. Some of you may live in the illusion that you're still a good person. Well, I'm a good person. I don't lie most of the time. I don't cheat unless it's really convenient and I know I have a good chance of getting away with it. This is one of the reasons why I was really reluctant to be a Christian. I thought Christianity was like bowling. And I've used this illustration over and over again. You go to the bowling alley. You look down the lane. You see the tens. You have a ball. You roll it down the lane. You knock over the pins. And if you knock them over, you are good. And if you don't knock them over, you are bad. So I... Pick up the ball, roll it into the gutter on the right side, roll it into the gutter on the left side. Every once in a while, I hit a a pin. There's a zero. There's a three. There's another zero and another zero. And then they all excited. Aren't you having fun? No, I am not having fun. This is not fun. It's not fun to do something that you're no good at. And I knew that I was no good at being good. I was really bad at it. As a matter of fact, if you could be really good at being bad, I was really good. That's the point that Paul is making. That the gospel needs to go out to people so that they can hear it and understand it and respond to it and experience forgiveness and grace and mercy because it isn't me hoping to change me from the inside, but it is the reality of a true God who by the power of the Holy Spirit transforms a heart and transforms a life. It was David O. McKay who said, quote, the gospel of Jesus Christ can make bad men good and good men better, but it can alter the human nature. It can change. Change you from the inside out. 
And so when Paul writes, brethren, pray for us that the word of, of the Lord, look what it says, may run swiftly. Even though that phrase is three words in our language, it's a single Greek verb, treko. It simply means to run. But it was used to describe a runner in a race. It was often used to describe a person who would take a message from town to town and province to province. Paul uses use it in the metaphorical sense to run quickly or to proceed swiftly. But it's also where you go without obstacle or hindrance. It's the idea of run in such a way where the person doesn't have to stop and explain everything to everyone, but that that this person can get from one place to the other. And the metaphor, of course, is the Olympic runner carrying the torch, bringing the light, understanding. And here the torch is the gospel itself. There is forgiveness. There is hope. There is redemption. And so the idea is for the gospel to go out in an unhindered fashion. We live in an age of instant communication. You want information, you you turn on your PC or your laptop or your computer or whatever it is. You hit the on button and you go, this is unacceptable. It's taken 30 seconds for this thing to boot up. See, you laugh because you know when you you expect virtual information. The TV is on. You want instant communication and an instant message. And if you live in Colorado, you expect to be able to go through the mountains of Colorado without hindrance. And then all of a sudden you hear in the news that 285 is closed because a rock has come down from the mountain and has lodged itself right in the middle of the road. You go up I-70 and there's rocks, slides everywhere. Here's my big question. You live in the Rocky Mountains. Does it shock you and surprise you when a bit of the, the, the mountain falls off and right into the middle of... This is unacceptable. Do you think the rock was up there going, I know that you're going to be going right through this road today. And I'm, going to, I'm just going to impede your process. But you see, there is... A calculation on the part of people to oppose the gospel. And that's one of the ideas. One of Satan's chief strategies is to eradicate the gospel message. And if Satan can't get rid of the gospel, if he's unable to eliminate the gospel, then pollute the gospel, add to the gospel, subtract to the gospel, make it seem ludicrous, make it seem ridiculous. And if you can't make it seem ludicrous or ridiculous, then make it boring. I can't believe it. I go to this church week after week and all Gina wants to talk about is the gospel. Well, yeah. Yeah. Note what he's praying. That I and my, my buddies can preach the gospel and that the gospel can be heard and understand and received and believe. It was Dr. Donald Kogan, who was the former Archbishop of Canterbury, who said of Christian pastors, quote, it is their task to feed the sheep, not to entertain the goats. I like that. Because for some reason, there are people who believe, okay, you're the pastor, 
Look, I know you can do voices. Make me laugh. Jonathan came up and said, you know, about Ken Ham. Ken Ham. Might. Dite. Don't be light. Yeah. He's going to come and he's going to talk about creation. But he's going to do way more than talk about creation. He's going to talk about why you can trust your Bible. Why what the Bible has to say about your circumstances. That you aren't a meaningless mass of mud that somehow attained consciousness. That the reality is that God created you in a special act of creation. That what the Bible has to say in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, all the way through chapter 11, and quite literally all of the Bible can be trusted. The Bible message is powerful. It is real. It is true. It is the Bible message that changes you from the inside out. It wasn't speech. And it wasn't mass media. That changed my heart and forgave my sin. It wasn't religious community that changed me from a really wicked person into a halfway decent person. It was Jesus. And the more I know of Jesus and the more of the revelation of Jesus that I receive, I begin to understand something. That for as many people as who receive Christ, there are many more who reject him. The Bible has little power to influence them or change them or transform them. And I had to ask why. Why is that? Why are so many people opposed to the gospel? Why do they come to church with unprepared hearts and sleepy eyes and daydreaming minds? And I think that part of the reason is unprepared and carnal preachers. Who won't pray and pray and prepare and give the gospel. It was Spurgeon who said, you cannot tell how much God's servants are helped by the prayers of his people. The strongest man in Israel will be better for the prayers of the weakest saint in Zion. And the point of the prayer isn't so much focused on Paul, but on the centrality of the gospel. Pray for us. It was Nancy Shepherd who wrote, quote, the gospel is not presented to mankind as an argument about religious principles, nor is it offered as a philosophy of life. Christianity is a witness to certain facts, to events that have happened, to hopes that have been fulfilled, to realities that have been experienced, to a person who's lived and died and raised from the dead to reign forever, unquote. That's what we talk about. That's why we worship him. That's why we present him. That's why we talk about him. That's why Paul said, I purpose to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. When it was the mother of John and Charles Wesley who was apt to remind her two little boys, there are two things to do about the gospel. Believe it and behave it. You might think, well, that's not very good English. Hey, it might not be very good English, but she produced two boys who quite literally changed the face of the world because that godly mother praying for those boys every single day and instilling within them the truth, the gospel. Believe it, but don't be content to just simply believe it. Behave it. When the sheep are fed, they'll walk together in love. 
They'll reproduce. They'll follow the shepherd. It's when the sheep are hungry. That's when they start biting each other and becoming sick and wandering away. My pastor repeatedly told us growing up, healthy sheep produce healthy sheep. And so that's the idea. So he says, pray for us. And then he says in verse two, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith. Now, I want you to understand something. The Holy Spirit of God can use dedicated people to support the world, the word of God, to promote the word of God, to expand the word of God and disseminate the word of God. But for every single person who is promoting the word of God, there are 10 people who are opposing it. And here's the idea. When Paul prays that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, Paul knew something that Satan can use unreasonable and wicked people to oppose the word of God and the work of God. By the way, the word translated unreasonable is very, very interesting. It's the Greek word atopos. Now, you may not be too familiar with that word, but you in a way you are in our own Language and culture, we have several different words that we use, like topical. When you're talking about a topical sermon or a topical Bible, you go to a particular place or subject. As a matter of fact, if you look at a topographical map, the topographical map is going to point you to the right place. The A is known as the alpha privative. The alpha privative is the Greek way of making something positive negative. So if you want to use the word Theist to describe God, you say atheist to say no God. If you word the word, use the word gnosis to use the word knowledge, agnosis or agnosticism becomes no knowledge. Atopos literally means out of place or not in the right place. And depending on how the word was used in the ancient Greek world, world and in the context it was given, it could mean strange. It could mean paradoxical. In later Greek writings, it had an ethical connotation. So it came to mean atopos meant improper or wicked. So here it's translated unreasonable. One Bible teacher actually translates this moral insanity. And I like that. And the reason why I like it is is it becomes a perfect description of people who oppose God and who oppose Christ and who oppose the Bible. They enter into a kind of moral insanity, don't they? It's where all of a sudden posting the Ten Commandments in school becomes something worth going to court over and suing someone over. As a matter of fact, my friend John MacArthur in his book, Right Thinking in a Wrong in a World Gone Wrong, talks about that kind of collapse of culture and an embracing of moral insanity in, in the table of contents. He talks about what is real and what's not. He talks about glorifying God in, in the world of entertainment. He talks about internet, internet dating and God-honoring romance and, and virtual reality meeting real life and parental guidance and American Idol and entertainment escapism and, and the cult of celebrity. But the whole point becomes we live in a culture and a society that distances itself from what is right And is more than happy to say, right is wrong and good is evil. 
And it's a, it's a kind of moral insanity. I was watching. I shouldn't have been watching Larry King last night. I've been doing it. But I'm watching Larry King and a friend of mine um, who's a Calvary pastor. He's actually the pastor of Horizon in San Diego County. His name is Bob Botsford. And he's on Larry King Live with a young lady who was very well-known in the Christian community, who was a very well-known um, artist and and singer and musician, and this young woman who, who sang wonderful songs to the Lord and made an amazing contribution to the body of Christ, came out recently and, and openly declared that she was, not only did she have same-sex attraction, but that she was a lesbian, and she was embracing that particular lifestyle. And so Bob Botsford, the pastor, comes on and begs her to repent of her sin and to return to the Lord. He basically reminds Larry and he reminds the viewing audience that same sex attraction, though wicked and though wrong, doesn't necessarily mean that you are outside of either the family of God or the love of God, but that God has saved you. He's redeemed you. He's changed you from the inside out. And then Larry goes, hey, Pastor Bob. What if she was born with four fingers? And I'm going, what? What is Larry King saying? What do you mean born with four fingers? And I, in my own mind, I'm having this conversation. Well, then you wave the best that you can with the fingers you got. You shake the best that you can with the fingers you got. No, no, no. I mean, it's a, it's a genetic predisposition. In other words, you know... Do you, hey, did you have a choice for your uh, heterosexual uh, uh, attraction? She has no choice. She's doomed. She's genetically doomed to be a lesbian. And I'm sitting there going, I want to I reach through the TV and choke him out. The Bible does say that we're born in trespasses and sins. We are sinners both by nature and by choice. Does that mean that you're genetically doomed to go to hell? No. There's a Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. That in spite of our wickedness and our sinful dispositions, there is a God who loves us and is willing to change us and to transform us. But we're living in a world of moral insanity. Where people will oppose the work of God and they will oppose the word of God. My friend Franklin Graham got invited to, on the National Day of Prayer, to go to the Pentagon to pray for our soldiers, to pray for our troops, to pray for the military, to pray for the men and women who sacrificially and selflessly serve, including my own son. And then they disinvite him. You can't come. Why? Well, because you suggested that Islam is evil. And then now ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, Fox News, they form panels. Did you hear what the Reverend Graham said? He said that Islam is evil. On Fox News, they go, did you hear what the Reverend Graham said? Islam is evil. And so they have this little panel and the guy goes, yeah, do you remember the last time that happened? Remember when the Roman Catholic Church 
announced and denounced some of the practices of Islam in northern Africa as they were crucifying Christians and as they were enslaving people and as they were sending their children to blow themselves up and someone criticized them and Roman Catholic nuns began running away from a hospital and they shot them in the back because it's a religion of peace. You understand the point. You understand the point. All of a sudden, even the commentator began to say, well, you know, it really is kind of hard for us to come. I mean, isn't it wicked and evil to kill people for no good reason? Isn't it wicked and evil to shoot nuns in the back? Isn't it evil to send your children and blow them up for some sort of ideological principle that you think that you embrace? If that isn't the very definition of evil, then what what does evil mean? And now all of a sudden the panel is stunned. The panel is stunned because do we literally live in a culture and a society that has banned speech? Is every part of Islam evil? Let's just for purposes of our discussion say no. But I want you to think carefully for just a moment. Does a worldview that suggests that you can be saved apart from Jesus Christ, that your sin doesn't matter and that his sacrifice doesn't matter and that his love doesn't matter and that his death doesn't matter and that his resurrection from the dead doesn't matter? When Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but by me. But that doesn't matter if you live in a world detached from and distant from the hope of salvation that comes in Christ. Isn't that by very definition evil? Most people make at least a pretense of believing the truth. Some people set aside Jesus in the gospel because they believe that Jesus will interfere with what they perceive to be their legitimate or their illegitimate pursuits. They simply dismiss Jesus because they would rather waste their time, waste their energy, waste their resources. And they don't want anyone to interfere with their sin. And so Paul asks for prayer. And note, note what Paul doesn't ask for. Paul doesn't say, brothers and sisters, give me money, money, sow your best seed of tithe right into my pocket and receive a hundredfold return and pray for my comfort and pray uh, for my, my resources, pray that we can build a monument to God. He doesn't even ask you to pray for government help. He doesn't ask you to pray for social justice. He says, pray for the gospel. Pray that it will be preached. Pray that it will be heard. Pray that it will be believed. Pray that people's hearts will break and change and that they would be convicted over their sin. 
And look what it says in verse 3. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Now, look what Paul is doing. He has high hopes that the Thessalonian believers won't cave into the schemes of the devil. As a matter of fact, when he says in verse 3, but the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. The, the verb guard is very interesting. In the original language, it's phylazo. It's related to the, to the noun phalanx. Phalanx is a, is, a, is a military term that would describe a group of army men who are positioned between the opposition and the thing that they're protecting. And so it meant a guard or a sentinel. And so here it means to guard and protect. And so there is inherent in this word a sense of service, a sense of guarding, a sense of protection. And the idea is the thing being guarded remains safe. And so here's what Paul is saying. It's the Lord who's going to keep you safe. The Lord is faithful. Human beings can be unfaithful. I wish to God I could say to you that under each and every circumstance, your wife will remain faithful. Your husband will remain faithful. Your children will remain faithful. The leaders will remain faithful. Your politicians will remain faithful. But it wouldn't be true. God is faithful. God is faithful. One Bible Expositor paraphrases it this way, quote, he will not only place you in a firm position, but he will maintain you there against assaults from without. The idea is attacks from the outside. And so the evil one who is spoken of here is the devil. This isn't evil in the abstract. This isn't just bad thinking or bad thoughts. This isn't ill will detached from a real person. This is the evil influences of Satan. And here's the promise. God promises to keep Satan on a short leash. Your life is hidden Christ. The Bible says that the Lord will not allow any test or temptation to become too great for us. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, and will not allow Satan to do whatever he wants with us. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, you remember in the book of Job, even as there was consideration being given and the Lord said, consider my servant Job, that there's none like him in all the earth. Even then, the Lord said, hey, you can do what you want. But his life, you have to spare his life. You may wonder, what in the world are you thinking, Lord? Why would you allow this kind of attack? Well, remember what Jesus prayed to the Father in John seventeen fifteen. He said, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Here's the idea. We have a supernatural enemy. We have a powerful enemy. We have a clever and wicked enemy. But God's there to guard you, to guide you and to protect you. 
The Bible teaches that Satan sows tares among the wheat in Matthew 13, 24. He instigates false doctrine in 1 Timothy 4, 1. He perverts the word of God in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. He hinders the works of God's servants in Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. He blinds human beings to the truth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He steals the word of God from human hearts in Matthew 13, 19. Satan is involved in a constant campaign. Campaign of accusation in Job 1.7, laying snares for people in 2 Timothy 2.26, tempting in Matthew 4.1, afflicting in Job chapter 2 verse 7, deceiving in Revelation chapter 12 verse 9. But God's willing to guard you and to guide you and to set himself between him and you. People are unfaithful. But God is faithful. Paul writes in 2 Timothy at the end of his life, he's in a Roman prison cell. That he's, he's experiencing the terrible tragedy of what it feels like to be abandoned by everybody. He writes, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark. Bring him with you. He's useful to me in the ministry. Right when you need someone to be there. Sometimes they won't be there. And so in verse 4, Paul writes and he says, And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now this is... An interesting point. Expectation is a very funny thing. Expectation is something that we all live with. When you come to church, you actually expect worship and you expect the word. When you go out to a restaurant, imagine you go and the person says to you, oh, we don't have food today. We have garbage. You go, that probably that's not that's not what I was expecting. I'm expecting food. But then they bring you food and there is a big, fat, juicy fly right there. And then they lapse into a great conversation about how insects provide protein in the third world. And you go, you know, that's all very interesting that bugs provide protein in the third world. But I want a hamburger without That's pretty reasonable, though, isn't it? It's reasonable to expect a cold, clean cup of water. And so here, Paul desires from the little band of believers. I I, I want you to just do the math here just very quickly. What is it that Paul wants from these people? I want you to pray for me. That there's an open door to the gospel and that I will be able to preach the gospel. Question, is that a fair expectation or an unfair expectation? Do you think it's fair? Paul desires the people's prayers in verses 1 and 2. Paul desires that people trust the Lord in verse 3. Is it fair for him to expect them to trust the Lord? Fair or unfair? Now, in verse 4, Paul desires that the people... Obey what's been taught. 
I want you to pray for me. I want you to trust the Lord. I want you to obey what's taught. Fair or unfair? I think it is fair. I think it is fair. Think about what Jesus did with his own disciples. Paul has confidence in the Lord that they would continue to do. That is, exercise obedience to the things of God and Christ. We have confidence not in you, but rather in the Lord concerning you. You see, this was the one exception that hurt me so bad. If I decide to become a Christian, if I believe the truth about Jesus, if I receive him as my Lord and Savior, I know they're, they're going to expect me to be a good person. And I don't know that I can do that. In order for me to do what's expected of me, I need a brand new heart. The Lord goes, give you one. I need a brand new affection and desire. I'll give you a brand new affection and desire. I'll give you a desire to know him and to love him. And I'll give you a desire to want to walk in freedom and in friendship and fellowship with him. I'm going to give you the desire to see not only the benefits of submission and obedience, humility and vulnerability to the things that I've commanded you. I'm going to reward you in that. Paul has spent a great deal of time explaining the word of God in the scriptures. He's spent a great deal of time explaining the word of God and the promises of God and the commands of God. In Psalm 1918, it says the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. In Matthew 28, 20, when when Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven, he says to the disciples, I want you to go into all the world. I want you to disciple the nations. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 20, it says, I want you to teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Even the gospel itself asks people to repent and believe. And note, where is Paul when he's writing these words? He's in Corinth. Where are they? In Thessalonica. So Paul says, pray for me, even when I'm not there. Trust the Lord, even when I'm not there. Obey the word, even when I'm not there. Continue to grow spiritually, Even if I'm not there, by the way, in verse four, the word command, it's really a military term. It was a word used both in law enforcement, if you will, and the military. It was a word that meant an order passed down from a superior officer. And if life can be likened to a battle, what Paul is saying is that the fighting isn't just simply reserved to the officers and the leaders. The fighting belongs to everyone. Battles could never be fought and battles can never be won. Imagine an army where no one ever obeys the officer, where no one exercises order or discipline. What if we ran the church the same way that the army runs the army? Oddly enough, we'd be better off. 
we would win more than we lose and we would advance more than we retreat. Why? A soldier understands something. Loyalty, duty, even if they're only motivated by fear. But Paul's statement, that you're not motivated simply by duty and you're not motivated simply by loyalty and you're not motivated simply from fear. Look what it says in verse 5. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Now again, do the math. What is it that Paul wants from the people? Their prayers. Reasonable or unreasonable? Paul desires that the people trust the Lord in verse 3. Reasonable or unreasonable? Paul desires that the people obey what's taught, verse 4. Reasonable or unreasonable? Paul desires that the people grow spiritually. Reasonable or unreasonable? I think so. He says, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. The word direct, by the way, is an interesting word in the original language. It means to take the direct route. It means to go straight or to make straight or to be straight. The idea is that the shortest distance between two places is the, the, is the place that will provide the mechanism whereby you can go directly. Look what it says now. May the Lord direct, go straight, go straight in your hearts into the love of God. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Here's where I need you to go. I need you to make a run for it right into the heart of Christ and right into the love of God. You want to know why? Because it is the love of God and it's the character of Christ that will give you the ability to pray for your pastor and to desire to trust the Lord and obey what is taught and to grow up. And by the way, that word patience, it's your favorite word. Remember Italian ice cream? Spumoni? Hoopamoni. The word patience Hoopamoni literally means, oddly enough, it means a remaining behind. Literally, what that means is for the person who's left behind, they have to have fortitude and strength and perseverance. It's the, so it, it meant to remain behind, but all the while to endure the trial and the suffering. And so it becomes a, 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 a metaphor for Christ-like fortitude. This is the patience. This is the patience that can come only from constant contact with the character of Christ. This patience doesn't come from you going to church on Sunday or listening to me teach or downloading the message. It doesn't come from hoping and praying that you'll do the right thing. This is because you're a constant companion of Christ. It's your sweet friendship. It's your sweet fellowship. It's your contact with Jesus. That will give you patient expectation. And by the way, even in that statement, there's a hint. It's the hint of the trial. It's the hint of the sorrow. 
It's the hint of the patient expectation that Jesus is coming back for me any moment. Any moment. I want to ask you a question. What do you suppose is the average time a pastor spends at a church in America? Do you realize that the average pastor in the average church stays in the average church for three years? And then they move on. I'm coming up on my 19th year at this church. But I won't make it to 20 unless you pray. Unless you trust the Lord. Unless you obey. Unless you grow. You want to hear another disturbing statistic? You know what's the average time a typical congregant spends in his or her church? It's about a year and a half. You want to hear another disturbing statistic? Fifty people have to visit your church before one will stay. Now think about that. Multiply you by 50 and the person next to you and the person next to you and the person next to you. And I want you to think about how many people have made their way into our church and out the door. Because here's what Paul is saying. An effective ministry, a God honoring ministry, a transformative ministry includes intercessory prayer because it unifies the church and it keeps the leaders in humility and vulnerable. When you pray for me, what you're praying is, Lord, make him depend upon you. Oh, no. Not the radio program. Why doesn't that bring thousands of people into the church? Why not in 20 years of preaching because it's not my skill and it's not the radio people can come to our church for an event but they stay for reasons other than that pastors and leaders and the church have to agree what's on central what's central what's vital what's essential and it can't be entertainment it has to be the gospel You see, if I believe that the most important thing that we can do as a church is worship God and disciple the saints and reach the lost, if you think something else is more important, then the chances are we're bound to have a problem. But pastors and people have to be involved together in the work of the ministry. That's the point that Paul is making. Pastors and leaders have to share some common sense of the need. What is it that we need? We need to worship the Lord. We need to disciple the saints. We need to reach the lost. We have a common Savior who intercedes for all. We have a common enemy committed to our fall. So what should a pastor? What should a minister? What should a leader expect from the congregation? Is it wrong for me to expect that you would pray for me? Is it wrong 
for me to expect that you will trust the Lord? Is it wrong for me to expect that you will obey the Lord? Is it wrong for me to expect that your desire would be to spiritually grow? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, the gauntlet has been thrown down. (laughs) Lord, we know that in order for our church to be in the same page and go in the same direction, we have to pray for one another. Lord, we understand the desire of humility and vulnerability and accountability and dependence upon you. Lord, we understand the need that we all have to agree on what is central and vital and essential. Lord, we agree that that it's not just the pastors and the leaders of this church, but it is the people that will provide the mechanism of growth and maturity and ministry. And Lord, I pray that we would sense a common sense of need. That what I perceive to be real and needful is what they would perceive to be real and needful. That we all together would understand something. That we need you, Lord. We need your love. We need your grace. We need your patience. Lord, we know it's you who transforms us from the inside out. Lord, we know that no matter how much pressure our wife or our husband or our children or our parents put on us, That it isn't their constant berating that is going to make me different or make them different. It's the power of a wonderful Holy Spirit working, changing, convicting, growing, maturing, transforming that will make a difference. Lord, I pray that you'll give us an open door. To preach the gospel. To teach the Bible. To reach the lost. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand.